Our scripture reading this morning is found in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, well, good morning, y'all again. Good to see you. Um, happy Mother's Day again to you all here. We're so glad that you were with us. And for family members who are uh, traveling in from out of town, we're glad uh, you're with us this morning. Um, a, a question I just wanted to ask, some of you maybe, maybe you've wondered this, but what, do you remember what life was like before Pinterest? Like, like how, how we functioned before, I mean, like, how did we decorate tables at weddings? How did we plan birthday parties? How did we make cupcakes? Or how did we pull off VBS, like, without Pinterest? If you, if you, like, just think about that. There's so many things in our life that kind of center around Pinterest. It's a staple in our world. And, and I know this very, very well. My wife, who is a blogger and a creative, she utilizes Pinterest a ton. And, and it's so central to so many things. And if you've been living under a rock for the last, like, you know, seven years, uh, Pinterest is this kind of online place. You can post pictures where people are basically envious of you, essentially. That's pretty much why it functions. But, but there's something about Pinterest. Like, there's, I mean, everything on there, it's not an accurate representation of reality. It's everything is picture perfect, and you get kind of duped into thinking, like, I could do that. I could create this thing. I can make a cake just like this. I could host a party like this. I could design a room like this. But you know it's not that easy. And I'm sure some of you are aware of the phenomenon of Pinterest fails, that you have attempted to make something on Pinterest, and it doesn't quite turn out the way you were expecting. And so, like, for example, maybe you, you set out to make a beautiful rainbow cake. Like, this is a great idea. Well, I'm going to do this for my birthday party. But instead, what comes out is something that a rainbow threw up. Like, that's what it ends up looking like, you know? Uh, or, or you have a hope to make these cupcakes of everyone's favorite emoji, of course. Uh, but that what ends up coming out is something that haunts you for the rest of your life. <laughs> and uh, you're going to need counseling after that. Uh, or you think, you know what, I'm going to adorn my wall with some beautiful crayon art with the letter of my name. Uh, but then what you create causes you to actually say, you know what, maybe I should change my name, actually. I think this is horrendous. Uh, or it's springtime, you know, let's, let's you know, uh, fix our doors with a beautiful succulent wreath, you know, something that would look pretty and beautiful. But, but instead what you create is this like circle of terror that scares your neighbors and birds for that matter. Uh, and, and then lastly, this one, you know, moms, you know this one for sure. Your attempt to capture that perfect picture moment on the first birthday, oh, that's what you think is going to happen, but instead you capture the moment that is actually more accurate of, of, the, of <laughs> child life uh, at home. And, and, and you're all laughing at this you, you, because you know the pain of this. You know the reality of, of expectations versus reality. And, and we're laughing at this, but there is a sense in which as we think about certain expectations and, and how we are faced with reality that there's a pain that isn't laughable. 
we all understand and recognize the pain of things not going the way we were hoping or expecting, especially when it comes to family. We, we do. We feel the brokenness of our families, both the families that we have come from and the families that, that potentially we create and are a part of. And even this day in particular is a day where, where many of us acutely feel the pain of broken families. We're reminded of the brokenness of the relationships we have with our own mothers, the brokenness that we feel, and, and that if, if you're a mom, that you're not the mom you, you thought you would be, or, or for some of us, the pain is that we aren't moms, and there's the longing for that. And for whatever reason, we have not been granted that opportunity. We all feel and sense the pain of broken families. And deep within all of us is a longing to be a part of some caring family. The question is, what, what hope is there for us, for those of us, for many of us, who long for that kind of belonging, a place of acceptance, of love, where we are not just loved, but we are liked and appreciated and valued? Is there a way to have and be a part of this kind of caring family? Well, this morning, as we continue on in the book of Galatians, uh, this is what I want us to look at and explore in more detail that there is a hope that in the gospel message, what we find is that the gospel does not just make us free, but it makes us family. That the good news of the gospel is that in Christ Jesus, we aren't just free, we are family. Now, before we jump into the text this morning, I want to pray for our time and for the Lord's blessing on the teaching of his word. So let's, let's take a moment to pray. Father in heaven, we pause in this moment to ask for your spirit to bless the teaching of your word. Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. It is in the name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen. So, uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 4. Uh, we've been journeying through the Galatians these past several weeks. And, and what, when we turn to chapter 4, I want us to see a few things as Paul unpacks this idea that we aren't just free, we are family. And the first thing I want us to see is that the law, the Old Testament law, shows us we need a family. The Old Testament law shows us we need a family. Now, last week, if you were with us, we kind of unpacked some of what the Old Testament law is all about. What is its purpose? What is its function? And, and you could kind of sum up the Old Testament law and all of its demands and regulations and rituals. You could sum up the Old Testament law by saying, God is holy, we are not, and help is on the way. That, that, if you had to sum up the Old Testament law, God is holy, we are not, help is on the way. And Paul's whole point up until Galatians 4 really has been to kind of show that the help that it was sent on the way was none other than Jesus the Messiah the one sent to deliver us from the burden of the law, the burden of having to be good enough on our own, which we could never be. In other words, Jesus came so that we might be brought into the family of God when we couldn't bring ourselves into the family through our own efforts and initiatives. Which is why Paul, as he, as he ends chapter 3, kind of showing that, that those who are, have faith in Christ Jesus are true sons of Abraham, he goes on and builds his case in chapter 4, opening up with these words, he refers, he says that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. 
Now, there's a lot there in those opening verses, but, but Paul uses this word guardian, and you may have noticed it earlier in chapter 3. He uses that same word to describe the law. And this word guardian, it has this meaning of, of a tutor, of, of an instructor. And really, that's what the purpose of the law was, to instruct God's people to guide them to see their need for a savior. The law was not given so that they could be good enough on their own, but rather to awaken them to the need that they had of a savior to rescue them. The law was never intended to be the means by which God's people, or anyone for that matter, is brought into the family of God, but rather, rather than viewing the law as a tutor to guide them to this truth, God's people, and we do this still to this day, we turned the tutor into a torturer. We turned the law into this burden that we must adhere to and obey completely in order to find favor and acceptance and forgiveness in the eyes of God. And we turned this tutor into a torture by putting the burden back upon us, which is exactly what theologian John Stott says when he says that God intended the law to reveal sin and to drive men to Christ, but Satan uses it to reveal sin and to drive men to despair. And here's the thing, we all have this tendency to kind of abuse and use rule keeping to kind of validate ourselves. And, and my, my daughter Jane, she's our, our second born, she's our rule follower for sure. And, and we have this tradition, we have various kind of dinner table traditions, and one of them is where we share highs and lows from our day. And so we usually go around and someone says the high of their day and the low of their day. And then my daughter Pearl suggested, let's do something different. Let's all say our highs, and then we'll all say our lows. I was like, that's a great idea, Pearl. Way to, way to improve upon a family tradition. And then Jane says, no, we're not doing that. Like, she was so adamant. I was like, why, sweetheart? She goes, because it's the law. <laughs> and I was just like, why is it the law? You know, and so she'd taken this fun family tradition and made it this burden. I was like, sweetie, this is, this is a fun thing for us to enjoy. But here's the thing. We all do this. We all use and abuse rule-keeping to validate ourselves through what we do. And we find that when we enter into that endless game, we find that it is endless because we're never good enough. But then Paul, before he allows this thought to continue, he introduces us to what I believe is the most beautiful word in all of Scripture, the word but. In verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. What a gloriously freeing truth that is. When you hear that word, when you, when you hear it contrasted with, we were under the burden of the law, incapable of being good on our own, but the good news of the gospel is in the fullness of time had come, Jesus was sent to redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, so that we might be granted the blessing of adoption. And what we see in this story, what we see in this text, is that the good news of the gospel tells us, yes, we are free, but even more than that, that we are family. And Paul shows us this as we continue by showing that it's the Father's love. It is the Father's love that makes us family. Now, it's amazing, it's amazing to know that through Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven and redeemed. 
That through Christ Jesus and his work and his life, death, and resurrection, that we are declared by God righteous and forgiven. That we are redeemed and restored. That we are free beyond our imagination and loved by God. That is amazing in and of itself. And we can stop the sermon there and be done. That's beautiful truth. But the good news of the gospel doesn't stop there. It's actually better. It's more than just being forgiven and freed and declared righteous. The good news of the gospel is that we are also allowed to be called children of God. You see, it's one thing to hear God say to you, your sins are forgiven and you bear them no more. Praise the Lord for that truth. But the good news of the gospel continues and tells us that because of Christ Jesus, your sins are forgiven and you're an orphan no more. It's not just that we are forgiven sinners, but that we are dearly beloved children. It's not just that we are absolved of sin, but we are adopted as sons and daughters of God Most High. You see, the good news of of justification, of God declaring us right in his eyes through Christ alone, that is not just the exclamation point at the end of a not guilty verdict, but rather it is the cover letter of our adoption papers that tell us that we are now declared sons and daughters of God. Praise the Lord for this truth. It's not just that we are free. It is no less than that. But the gospel boldly tells us we are also family. Which is why Paul says in verse 5, he makes it clear. He says, why did Christ come? Christ came to redeem those who were under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. The good news of the cross is not the end of it all, but rather that Christ came to die in our place so that we might be declared the children of God Most High. But here's the, I mean, the good news of the gospel, we have to see it, it's not just forgiveness. It's not just the forgiveness of our criminal sins, although it is nothing less than that. But rather, the the good news is that the plan of God from the beginning was that for when the fullness of time would come, We would be adopted by God as lost and lonely orphans declared to be his children. But the story is even better than that. Because it's not just that we are orphans who are now brought into a home, as beautiful as that is. The good news of the gospel is not just that I was an orphan. So if you are in Christ Jesus, this is your story. It's not just that you were an orphan. And it's not just that you were a criminal orphan. And it's not even that you were a criminal orphan who was adopted. It's that you were a criminal orphan adopted by the very one you committed your crimes against. I mean, just think about that. It's not just about forgiveness. And it's not just about adoption. It's that we are adopted by the very one that we have committed our crimes against. This is the good news of the gospel. That we are unfit, unqualified, undeserving of God's grace and the privilege to call God Father and to be called by him his dearly beloved children. And that not only have we, have we lacked the ability to earn God's favor, we have actually earned his disfavor. And in, in, in spite of that, he has still loved us to the nth degree, which is absolutely ludicrous. And yet, that is precisely what the the, the doctrine of adoption is. That it's not just that I was an orphan. It's not just that I was a criminal orphan. It's not just that I was an adopted criminal orphan, but that I was adopted as a criminal orphan by the very one that I committed my crimes against. That's the fuller picture of this gospel message. Now, to be honest, the idea of God as Father 
was not always the best metaphor uh, in my mind, and I'm sure some of you probably resonate with that, that because of the relationship you have with your father here in this world, that taints your picture of what it means that God is father. And, and that's my story. My, my, my dad uh, was unfaithful to my mom uh, and, and left uh, my mom and five kids, which was brutal when I was about the age of six. And so to hear people talk about God as father didn't do much for me because I didn't have a very positive connotation of a father relationship. But rather than that actually pushing me further away from God, what I realized, what I came to find is that the very reason I, I objected to the, the idea of God as father is because there was some standard of father that I was measuring my dad by, that he had failed to be a father, but what was I measuring him against? And what I grew to understand is that the reason why I was disappointed and frustrated and angry about my broken relationship with my father is because I was measuring him against this greater standard of father, which indeed was God, my heavenly father. And the reason, the reason why God as father ought not to be something that pushes us away from him, but rather draws us closer is because we have to understand that God as Father is a Father who will never abandon us or reject us. And, and if, we, if we buy into that lie that the, the God the Father will reject us or abandon us if and when we're ever not good enough, we are living into a lie and distorting God and guilty of idolatry because we are distorting the image of who God is. The good news of the gospel is that yes, we are made family through the love of the Father, but also what we see is that it is the Spirit's work that keeps us as family. As Paul continues on in Galatians 4, he shows us that it's the Spirit's work that keeps us family. And in verse 6, he says, And because you are sons, and that term sons is an androgynous term. It's meant to re refer to children, sons and daughters. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now notice that Paul doesn't say that the Spirit is sent to make us children, but rather the Spirit is sent precisely because we are children. That the Spirit is sent to us that we might remember and be brought back to the reality of our identity as criminal orphans adopted by God into his family, never to be rejected or abandoned again. But calling God Father... What, what Paul is saying here, what, what the gift of the Spirit is doing in the lives of those who are in Christ Jesus, that it is not just about giving people intellectual assent to the truth that God is their Father. It is no less than that. But rather, it, it, it's not just like a checkbox that you fill out on a medical form, but rather that what it means to be adopted by God and to have the Spirit sent into our lives is that the Spirit reminds us and compels us and tells us over and over again who we are and whose we are. And that this truth of being adopted by God is not just a truth that we recognize and believe. It's not just a central doctrine to the Christian church, but rather it is a truth to be embraced and delighted in and celebrated because the God who could have anything, the God who could have anything he wants, has declared that what he wants is to call you and me his children. That he wants to give us the blessing and the privilege of calling him Abba. 
And that word, that word Abba, it's an, it's an Aramaic word, uh, which was used actually by Christ himself. It's, a, it's an affectionate term for one's father. And it's the very term Jesus used in referring to God himself. And what's interesting here is that, that most of the early Christians, and, and Paul in particular, they wrote and they spoke in Greek. And Galatians is written in the, in the, in the Greek language, but this word Abba remained Aramaic. It was almost as a way to say, we want to continue this tradition that the same one, that Jesus, who was able to call God Father, the same word that Jesus used is now granted by those who are in Christ Jesus to call God the same term. That it's not, it's, it, we aren't like different children. It's not that we have a different status. Just like in a family where you have biological and adopted children, the adopted child is not to be seen in a different category. They are loved and adored to the same degree they ought to be. And the same way as Jesus calls God Abba, we have the ability to call God the same term. It is a way to say that the Spirit works in us to remind us that we share in the same identity as children of God, just as Jesus did. And that is what the Spirit does in our lives. That if, if you are in Christ, the Spirit reminds you of who you are and whose you are which are fundamentally things we tend to forget, and we are reminded of this truth when we are tempted to run away and join another family, so to speak. When I was, uh, when I was in second grade, I lived just down the road, just south of here on Iowa Street, and I attempted to run away from home. Uh, I was just kind of fed up with you know, the fact that I came from a broken family, I wanted something different, and so I attempted, in my mind, it was a brilliant idea. And so I took my backpack, I got some clothes, and I took a loaf of bread, a jar of spaghetti sauce, and some shredded cheese, thinking I would live off these homemade pizzas that tasted like garbage. Uh, but I got on my bike, and I had my terrible uh, back snack, and, uh, and started leaving. And, you know, I got maybe a mile away from home when I realized, this is stupid. What am I doing and what brought me back home, what caused me to turn around was not, was not the hope that I would have a dad or that my home, we would find a bigger home or that we would go on more glorious vacations, but rather what drew me back was the further and further I got from home, the more I realized I was leaving and getting distant and further and further away from the place that I belonged. And I realized as much as I didn't love my home environment, it was still my home. It's still where I belonged. And in many ways, I share that because in many ways, that is the work of the Spirit in our lives. We tend to want the Spirit to function like a family vacation, when in reality, what the Spirit does is that He works in our life more like a, a dinner table. What, what I mean by that is that, you know, a vacation is this great time, it's this unique time with family where you're enjoying, you know, time together hypothetically, you know, depending on the vacation. But, but you know, that's the idea. The vacation is a good time with family. But the dinner table, well, that's just, like, that's just kind of mundane, routine, day in, day out. We want the Spirit to create these amazing moments of religious feeling when what we actually need to see is that the Spirit is at work in our lives, not through fabricating religious affection, but through reminding us of our need to be with our Father and our family at the dinner table day in and day out. Because you see, without the dinner table, the family vacation is actually not as enjoyable. 
In the same way, if we're longing for these fabricated experiences without the Spirit's work through the dinner table of of routine prayer and engaging the Scriptures, of of gathering in community and worshiping together as a family, of living generously, of, of regularly repenting and confessing sin, when we fail to see that those routine practices form us and shape us and remind us of our identity as adopted sons and daughters, if we fail to see that, We will fail to see what it means that God sent Christ at the fullness of time to redeem us from the curse of the law that we might receive the blessing of adoption. To to say it another way, the Holy Spirit grows us as children through the daily habits and rhythms of being yoked to Christ, through the practices that Christ himself emulated. But we also grow and live in light of the reality that that, that God is present and that he is our father, we also grow when we understand that he is at work even in the mundane things of life, that the spirit is at work even in the things that we think are, are pointless. We need to recognize that the spirit is at work and reminding us of our identity as sons and daughters as we're spreading peanut butter or as we're making spreadsheets. Like in both of those lines of work, we see the spirit at work And what that means is that you are no less a child of God in those moments, but we need the Holy Spirit to remind us of that. The Spirit works to combat these lies that tell us you're only in the family as long as you maintain your status. Yeah, you've been adopted. Yeah, we've signed the papers, but you better make sure that you keep up with everything that is expected of you or we'll send you right back to the orphanage. And those are the lies that the Spirit is at work in combating and reminding us that our Father loves us and that he has sealed us and secured our status in the family through his own blood. The good news of the gospel is that we aren't just freed, but that we are family. And while the law shows us our need for a family, And while the love of the Father is what makes us a family and and the Spirit is the one that keeps us in the family, I'm sure there are still questions of, well, so so what do we do with this? How do we move forward? So let me offer us a few questions to reflect on this truth. As we think about this good news that is not just telling us you are freed and forgiven, although it is absolutely that, but that you are family and you are welcome here. Let me offer a few questions to consider. The first is this. Do you find joy in knowing that God is your father? I mean, if you would, today, if you would identify as a follower of Jesus, do you delight in the fact that the creator of all things, that the one who could have anything he wants, has said, what I want is you to be my child and for me to be your father? Do we delight in that truth? And just to be honest, if this truth doesn't wow me, if it doesn't doesn't shake me and compel me to live a life of of devotion and love and gratitude to God my Father, then there's a good chance I either have a very diminished view of God or a very diminished view of my sin. In fact, uh, theologian J.I. Packer, he says this so well. These are not easy words, so I'm warning you, but they're no less true. He says this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity... Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. 
Because the central message of the gospel is not just that we are forgiven, but that through Christ Jesus we are declared family. That this is the highest blessing of the gospel. And so we need to embrace it and enjoy it. Do we delight in God as Father? Secondly, do you listen to the Spirit at the dinner table? Do you listen to the Spirit at the dinner table? What I mean by that is that if you're a Christian who feels distant from God, and that happens, please hear me say that is a normal thing, but if you find yourself feeling distant from God, or, or perhaps you're not a Christian, and you've kind of given up on this whole idea of God, because it's just, it just seems absurd, that the idea of Him being close to you is just absurd. Perhaps the reason, perhaps, the reason that you feel this distance or separation from him is that you have expected God through his spirit to function more like a vacation more than a family dinner table. That you've wanted him to create this kind of uh, religious affection and experience, and because that doesn't happen on a regular basis, well, it's pointless. But again, think of your own family situations. I can't remember what my family ate for dinner on February 2nd, 2012, but it was no less vital and necessary in forming us as a family together. In the same way, what we need are not simply this constant ongoing feeling of the family vacation, but what we need is the work of the Spirit in drawing us closer to God through these dinner table moments, through the rhythms of Scripture and prayer, through community and gathered worship. And that through these dinner table moments, we are slowly but profoundly being shaped and reminded of our identity as God's children. And to be clear, when I, when I say these, these are not what keep us in the family. Remember, because it says that because we are sons, God sent the Spirit to seal us and remind us of our identity. We don't remain in the family through this, but this is a, a way in which we show our identity as children. Which is why the great reformer Martin Luther, he said that it is, not, it is not imitation that makes us sons and daughters, but rather it is our sonship that causes us to be imitators of God. And that is what compels us to cry out, Abba, Father. So do you listen to the work of the Spirit at the dinner table? And lastly, do you live like a child or do you live like an orphan? If you are a child of God, then live in the freedom of that. Live in the reality that you have been adopted by God who has secured you and who has promised that I will never leave you nor forsake you. That there's nothing you could possibly do that could disqualify you from the status of being my child. That the Father's love has accomplished this role of our, of our status as children. He has accomplished it through his own work by sending his own son to secure our place at the family table, which is why Paul concludes in verse 7, you are no longer a slave, but you are a son and a daughter. And if you're a son or a daughter, then you are an heir through God. So hear me say so boldly that if you are in Christ Jesus, stop returning to the life of an orphan who has no father. Stop returning to, to the life of, of a slave under the law who has no hope. When we embrace the truth and hear boldly the words that God said over Christ and he says it over us, this is my dearly beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. When we believe that, that, that provides a fuel for faithfulness and fruitfulness that we could never find in trying to be good enough on our own. You are an adopted child, so live like it. Let me close with this. I, I had a friend who was 
uh, had some family members who adopted a, a young boy from Ethiopia. And, and he lived in an orphanage, and it was a, a not a good situation. And for the first year of his life, living in his new home, my friend and his family members, they found him always sleeping on the floor. They would go in the morning, and he'd be just lying there on the floor. And they're like, why are you on the floor? Why, why don't you sleep in your bed that we gave you? And, and he couldn't do that because all he had ever known was sleeping on the floor. And, and they had to hold him. They had to hold his face in their hands and say, you are not an orphan anymore. So stop sleeping on the floor. That's not your identity. You are a part of this family. So sleep in your bed because this is your home. And so if you are in Christ Jesus, the promise of the gospel tells us that we are not just free, that we are family. And that we are brought into a family that will never end because our Father is the eternal God of all creation. That our brother is the risen Christ who accomplished our role as sons and daughters through his life, death, and resurrection. And whose spirit compels us to cry, Abba, Father. Because the good news of the gospel doesn't just say you're free. It says you are family. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in prayer asking that you would, by your spirit, remind us of our adoption. Lord, that you would show us, for who are in Christ Jesus, that you are our Father who loves us and will never leave us. But Lord, would you also show, for those of us here who, who are not in Christ, Lord, would you show us the futility of our efforts to try to be good enough on our own, and may we find the freedom in hearing you say, stop striving Stop working. Would you rest in the work that I have accomplished on your behalf and receive the blessing of being my family? Lord, would your spirit do this in our lives and transform the way in which we live for our good and for your glory, we pray. Amen. It was such a joy to be with you all this morning. I'm so thankful for the truth that we have in the gospel that through Christ we are not just freed but made family. I hope that this was an encouragement to you today and perhaps even helpful, a helpful step to draw you closer to the Lord. As we prepare to leave this church together to be the church in our community, our work, our schools, and our city, hear these words from Galatians 4 as our benediction. Brothers and sisters, because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then an heir through God. Go in peace.